Welcome back to the Haircuts and Cuts podcast. Uh, today, Rob's not here, but I'm joined with a client and friend. Um, he's asked me to say he is not a professional boxing expert in any means. It's just the opinions of what goes down in the barbershop and the average man on the street. So <clears throat> thank you for coming on, Prof. Welcome. Welcome. I'm a pleasure to be invited and honour. That actually someone wants to listen to my opinion or anything in life which is quite a rarity in itself especially when you have children yeah yeah but so obviously i've got you on the podcast one to talk about um the boxing side and especially to talk about your journey with the illness you've had and how you've carried on training throughout that and still take your training very seriously, even though, like I say, you're not a professional athlete. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something that a lot of people could do with listening to because when people get ill and they get sick and they can sit and wallow in self-pity and not move forward, yet you've done the absolute opposite. Touch wood um, and long may continue. Um, Where should we start? How long have we got? Because if I talk about my background and illness would probably fill up an hour in itself. So how much detail do you want? Just um, as much as you reckon you could fit into um, I don't know, 20 minutes, maybe. And okay. Tell me if I'm going on too long. So <clears throat> put it in a nutshell, I was a regular, slightly overweight um, guy in my 30s, smoked, drank at the weekends, worked long hours, uh, stressful job, but high flying relatively. Um, pretty regular lifestyle. Went to the gym a few times a week. Ate, ate relatively healthily. Bit of junk food here and there. Nothing untoward. I'd suffered from periods of excruciating heartburn for many years, going back to my mid-teens, but I'd never really addressed it. Um, my, my now wife says that when we started dating, she didn't believe the amount of antacids I'd take, like sweets. We just put it down to lifestyle. I forgot about it. Um, and then in 2008, just after we got married, uh, through the summer, I was hit with such debilitating heartburn. I literally was bringing up bile, could not take down water. And she convinced me to go and see the GP. I lived in central London, but I was so complacent about all this stuff being there, late 20s, early 30s. I hadn't even bothered changing my GP from my residential address to my parents years earlier. So I went to see him. He gave me some tablets, which are just prescription antacids. Um, they quelled the problem, but as soon as I came off them, I was back to square one. Gave me another dose, same story. And then she convinced me to switch GPs. Uh, so we switched to a local GP. And went to see her. This was late 08. And she put me on one more course, along with some anti-emetics, anti-sickness pills, and said, if this doesn't work, I'm going to refer you to uh, a gastroenterologist to get investigated. Great. Got through Christmas, New Year. And as soon as I came off that final set of tablets, I was in agony. Could not hold down a glass of water, bringing up bile. Knew something was pretty bad. But didn't see the gastroenterologist at the local hospital privately. Thankfully, I was insured by my employers at the time. And even he did an abdominal exam externally and said, look, I think it's a bacterial infection or something. You're a relatively fit 33-year-old. Don't think there's anything to be alarmed about. We'll do the the scope down the throat on Friday. 
never forget it, Friday, February the 13th, 2009, the date is etched on my brain, went off to the hospital and my wife had to come with me because I was going to be sedated. There was no way I was going to put down my throat while I was awake. Um, they did the exam and I was still asleep, knocked out from sedative. And they led my wife into what she described as a comfortable room with a box of tissues and said to her, um, we basically found a very large tumour at the base of the esophagus leading into the stomach. Uh, we've taken some biopsies, which obviously will confirm, but I'm pretty sure it's cancer. Uh, and there on, therein began the whirlwind journey into the world of cancer treatment and oncology and chemotherapy at the age of 33. Um, work were very supportive, basically do what you need to do or carry on paying you, um, which was very good of them. And we kind of fell into the, the medical journey by accident. We didn't go the traditional route. He referred us straight to a surgeon that he knew at the Law Free in Hampstead. The surgeon examined me, did something called a laparoscopy, which is a minimally invasive exam through the abdomen, and saw what he thought was a metastasis growing out and referred me to an oncologist. And it was just a whirlwind for us in terms of tests and, and blood blood tests and, and you know everything else. So we just went with what were the experts. Looking back on it now, the surgeon was working towards killing the metastases to be able to operate, but the oncologist reading back through his letters had basically written me off as palliative before they'd even treated me. They put me on five cycles of chemo uh, in March 09, which was horrible, horrible stuff, with a view to killing the metastases. After five cycles, I was so weak um, they wouldn't do any more and my blood cell count was all over the place, white blood cell count um, they re-laparoscoped me, that's another little scar across the tummy and found the metastases were still alive but what they realised in that laparoscopy it wasn't metastases, it was a continual growth poking out of the stomach wall so then we moved to five cycles of chemo and radiotherapy that were all free um, that was through the summer of 2009 um, which is very physically debilitating as well. Um, that finished, um, and they retested me again and found that the bit of growth outside the stomach had pretty much died, like 98% necrotic. So they um, tried to get me to basically consume as much as I could and get myself fit for surgery in either December 2009 or early January 2010 which was obviously great news for us. Um, we went off to Vegas for five days over Christmas in the year to take a break, having never been there. And I was weak, but I was still physically okay and wasn't hurting too much. And I was on antacids to, to deal with any heartburn or residual side effects. I managed to eat and drink relatively normally. Got back from Vegas, um, Jan 2010, and taken into the Royal Free Care Operation. And they cut me open on the uh, operating theatre table and um, they realised that the growth is not just out of the side of the stomach wall, but it's actually grown through the back of the stomach wall and encased itself around a couple of arteries which carry the blood to the abdomen. And in their view, um, and he called in a thoracic surgeon as well from another theatre, in their view, if they tried to operate at that point, um, they would have ruptured the blood supply and killed me on the spot. So they closed me back up without operating. 
So we went from maximum hope to pretty much despair in a matter of hours. Um, they basically then said, oh, Paddy's even had about eight months to live, um, which is complete, which is the first time in that whole process I felt like, why me? I've never had that moment. Um, so I got discharged from the Royal Free, and my dad, bless him, was pushing for a referral to Harley Street um, to explore some technology he'd read about that had been used on Patrick Swayze, the actor who died of pancreatic cancer. And he finally got the, the Chris Hollis, the doctor who managed the chemo radio, to write a referral letter to the London Oncology Clinic on Harley Street. And even the letter, reading back from it, I've got all the copies filed. Um, basically read, look, this is a Hail Mary for a patient who's pretty much a write-off. See if you can help him. Um, the first doctor we'd written to, the first oncologist, didn't get back to us. And my dad chased it up. And by pure chance, it crossed the desk of a very young pioneering oncologist called Andy Geyer, um, who just seemed intrigued as to why some of the biggest heavyweights in the London medical scene had written off a bloke at the age of 34 with this cancer so called us in for an exploratory chat and that exploratory chat turned out to be a two-hour convo and that was the first time we had any inkling that the medical care was not really care for what i say you know, we don't invite lawsuits but not ideal for the raw free despite being a private patient the first thing he wanted to do was an mri scan which is a 360 scan to get a full understanding of the size shape and nature of the tumor in nine months of the law free, no one had ever done MRI. Apparently, at the time, NHS protocols were, if you find the cancer, you do a CT scan, you do a PET scan to, do the, to look at the activity of the tumour, but you don't do an MRI because they're quite costly. So even though I was private, they followed the NHS protocols. So this wasn't pure, real private care. Yeah. Which is a shocking failing in itself, and they wouldn't have had to open me up and then close me back up which has left a big abdominal scar down here. Anyway, Andy, in consultation with his surgeon, who was equally as pioneering and very aggressive, um, put together quite a radical surgery plan, um, which involved uh, a heart surgeon, uh, I think a vascular surgeon because of the arteries that were covered in tumour, and the cancer surgeon, to get all three surgeons in the same theatre as almost heard of given their schedules and, and diaries and all the rest of it, plus the cost involved. And there was some pushback behind the scenes from certain parts of the medical community in London about the, the pioneering nature of the surgery, excuse me. So in March 2009, having been written off two months earlier, I underwent an eight-hour operation um, in the Harley Street Clinic under the care of these three surgeons. They basically cut from behind my left shoulder down under my rib to my sternum and then down and broke my rib to get into my left rib. And in the course of the operation, they took out two thirds of my esophagus, my left diaphragm, my spleen, my entire stomach, uh, and 20% of my liver because the, the cancer was just touching the edge of the liver, but apparently the liver grows back pretty quickly to regenerate an organ. And Mr. Madan, the main cancer surgeon, said the most amazing part of the surgery was they had to clamp the blood flow from the aorta to the abdomen in order to revascularize these two arteries. And there was an eight minute window to do it before the organ would have died of organ failure for the lack of blood supply. 
with John Wolfe blessing who now retired was a vascular surgeon and Mr. Madan said it was that watching an artist at work. In touch with the operation was a success. They managed to get all the cancer out. Um, Andy's idea had been that if there was any residual cancer left, he would have put in some seed markets to identify those spots and then gone back and blasted them with his side knife machine, which is unheard of in cancer surgery because normally you go for clean margins, otherwise you don't operate. Yeah. But they're willing to try anything with me. Anyway, they got all the cancer out, which was a great relief. And I spent five days in hospital before being discharged and sent back home, obviously having dropped a lot of weight. Now, just to give you a bit of a backstory, this is how pioneering the treatment was. In the run-up to my surgery, they got me in touch with the team of physiologists at the Centre for Health and Human Performance in Harley Street. Um, they're pretty uh, extreme training and, and physical fitness guys. They've trained some of the biggest stars in the world. I think AJ's done some work with them. Andy Murray's trained there. Um, and it's all altitude training type stuff to make the body fit. Um, and they basically had me training five days a week there on a CPEX machine, improving my VO2 max, getting my fitness levels back up for what they viewed as a, you know, a physical ordeal, i.e. the surgery. Um, and they also had me on an unbelievably clean diet during that time as well. So no processed foods, no dairy, no gluten, whole foods, lots of salmon, lots of other fish, chicken, leafy green veg. And I think I put on about six kilos of lean muscle mass in two weeks through them, which is also wow. very beneficial. Um, um, because I was in such a poor physical state. And um, I may be wrong, it may not be six kilos. My memory is slightly vague on that, but it was definitely an impactful amount of, of muscle mass in two, two or three weeks. Um, and they attributed that as one of the reasons why I was able to leave intensive care after only one night, having had such major surgery. And go back up to my room and watch the rest of the Masters, which was on that weekend, because I had nothing else to do. I couldn't eat. So just watched the golf um, and sat in bed. Anyway, I discharged in a week or so. And then I was told to basically get myself ready for post-operative chemotherapy to mop up any of these cancer cells that may be in the bloodstream. And that was hard because I had to teach myself how to eat again. And I picked up a bacterial infection in the abdomen um, because it had been handled, you know, so extensively during surgery. So I was on some pretty nasty antibiotics as well. And my weight had dropped. I mean, um, pre all this starting, just before I got married, I was probably just about 100 kilos. Um, I got myself in some sort of shape for the wedding. Um, although looking back, it was still a horrific shape. You know, definitely made for comfort, not speed. And I was down to about 90 kilos. Okay. I thought that was down to training, but it might have been weight loss because of the cancer inside me. Um, by the time I finished my operation, I reckon I was at about 55 to 60 kilos. Wow, it's a huge drop. Yeah. And so we embarked on, on five cycles of post-operative chemo in the summer of 2010. And that was the toughest point. My body was so weak and battered, I literally could not handle the chemo. And after the second cycle, my wife had gone back to work. She's a school teacher. I remember I was doubled up in pain on the floor of my apartment in St. John's Wood. Absolute agony. I called my dad, who was lucky down the road, and he came around and got me, phoned the oncologist, and they rushed me to the hospital, the London Clinic. And basically, I picked up a, a bacterial infection called C. diff. 
which if I hadn't been put into hospital and got intravenous antibiotics, would have been the closest he said to you actually dying from this. Um, and so they did the final three cycles of chemotherapy as an inpatient in the London clinic. So I was in there for 10 days at a time, hooked up to chemotherapy drugs. So I lost a lot of weight. There were some funny, humorous moments along the way. You know, I was quite flirty with some of the nurses. Um, there were these sets of Australian physios who'd come around every day to try to get to walk. And after about two days, they realized that I wasn't going to walk. Because most of the patients in there were palliative and elderly. It's quite yeah. rare to have a young, relatively fit, strong-willed, strong-minded person. I'd tell my wife when she came to visit, tell the fucking physios to piss off. I'll walk when I'm ready. I'm, I'm capable of walking to the bathroom on my own. I was just in a foul mood and chemotherapy was making it worse. And I was just bored, you know, um, and wanting to get better. Anyway, all of this finished in December 2010. I came out of hospital and I think I was about 42 kilos. And therein began the journey to sort of rehabbing myself. And that's where within a few months I'd, I'd got the guys at the Center for Health and Human Performance to recommend a gym that they vouched for local to my workplace and started strength training from there. And it's been a long, arduous journey. And obviously went back to work and subsequent to that we've had we've had two children. I say thankfully. I'm saying that now because they're asleep. And then they were conceived, they were conceived naturally. Um, which was a real eye-opener to both the doctors and to us. Um, we had stored before the surgery and stuff, but the oncologist said even even chemotherapy could not kill off your super sperm. Um, I just said it was it was redundant for so many years. There was plenty plenty to go around, you know. <laughs> well, <clears throat> oh, thank God it worked because I. Obviously, I cut your kids' hair as well, and I think yeah. they are absolutely brilliant. They are the, two of the funniest kids I've ever met. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, they're good. I mean, they, they sort of remind you and ground you and keep you focused on the day-to-day, right, and not wallowing in your own misery too much. And, you know, kind of long story short, I think I got lucky in terms of the, the treatment I was able to access and the people I met. Um Problem is long-term living is hard because as every nutritionist, gastroenterologist, physiologist, and even my oncologist say, no one's had what you've had and lived this long, ever. So there is no playbook. Um, so I've got to try and figure it out myself and listen to my body and, and know what I can eat and can't eat and all the rest of it as I go along. And, and, and it becomes a little bit draining over time, and you have to keep picking yourself and like keep on going, keep on going, keep on going. Um, and that's, I suppose, where the resilience and, and the training helps, you know. Um, to put it yep. in context, in terms of weight, when I joined the gym I'm at now, which you know very well, obviously, I came back from an overseas stint working and I was 63 kilos. And two and a half years later, they got me up to 72. Just okay. through training and nutrition, and my body fat was pretty unchanged. But Matt, who runs the gym, always knows that I will push myself too hard and injure myself, which happens regularly. Because, you know, as in my head, I want to be reaching a level that is probably not attainable. But I see the sort of stuff he does. And like I said earlier, in my head, I want to be the rock. Whereas I'm just never going to be able to take on enough calories 
to supplement the training I do or want to do to get to that level, especially at my age as well. Yeah. So <clears throat> obviously you've been on the website and you've seen the tagline mindset as everything, mm-hmm. which is why I should come on a podcast. And obviously I, I know what you've been through, not to the detail you've um, said today on the podcast, and I know the gym you go to, it is what I would class as like a CrossFit slash strongman's gym, which is intimidating enough for anyone to go to a place like that. And, you know, especially if you're underweight or overweight or just getting into fitness, it, you know, they are full of nice people, but it's still an intimidating place. Yeah, it is when you walk in, but I think once you, and I've introduced quite a few friends to that gym as well, uh, and friends who've never really considered strength training or whatever and been a member of big box gyms, but once you actually talk to Matt and his team, this is almost a plug for the gym as well, it's one of the most laid back, and they are some of the most helpful people in, in that sphere, um, you can imagine. Nothing's yeah. too much trouble. They're always willing to help and advise. Um, and it's a real, almost family convivial atmosphere in there. Yeah, because you know, I, you know, I know um, the guys from the gym because they're coming to get their haircut, and you know they're not the type of people that would make you feel intimidated. But you know, from the outside looking in, it is. Getting back it can it, be yeah. very much like that, can't yeah. it? So but, obviously, your yeah, my dad goes there. Motivation for, for going Thursday, to the gym was to get back fit, strong, and healthy, and, he and that and that's carried like, on to now to train. you know. Obviously, stay fit, strong, and healthy, yeah, yeah, so you can grow. Yeah, you know, play with the kids as they grow up. Yeah, yeah, engage yeah, the sport, etc. Et the image belies the reality in that place. And the other thing is, it's not overestimated or understated. I think any gym when you're amazing, 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 you go to your regular version. Yeah, a lot of rounds, 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 Practice sets properly. I will put everything I can into my muscles, right? Without any program, probably, and I'll come out of feeling battered and very hungry. Working on their chest muscles, um, so and one of the other things that also supports is the one thing I've found is um, most of the time they're very good at teaching, and also leads a lot of discomfort. I'm one of these people who asks a lot of questions and why we're using this, why are using this grip, going there and training hard, really galvanizing my appetite. In terms of rest, and I've been tracking it for a number of years. Four months of days I train, I sleep much better, and I sleep much better. Um, so, just an all round better mood. But what I'm I think I'm getting is like your yeah, mindset. So do you think one of the reasons why you push live, yourself you to hard in the gym is because you know you've mentioned how hard you push yourself to the point where even and the trainers notice the gain in the knowledge. tell you off every now and something that helps. Do you think that comes down to as well? Because everyone wants to improve. One, because you've been through the well, it's only going to be sore legs, sore biceps. And the fact you know that afterwards you're going to be able to want to eat, which is a huge thing. A lot of people, if they didn't ever want to eat, I think that'd be a very odd thing. Yeah, good job is not a nutritionist. Yeah, yeah. And it's not. The first part of the question, it's not an obvious conscious for a check is there so much understanding the scars and stuff. Yeah. Um, I've been through the worst. Yes. I'm really surprised you're not fat. This is a positive thing. Most patients I have their yeah. stomachs resected wind up really fat and unhealthy. Excuse me. And 
I told him what I was years. doing in the training I was doing. I just think of people around me, and I've always been training with the gym in London. A sports similar enough training, training, but not to the extent most sports. You well, I don't count darts and snooker as sports. Yeah, I always focus on sport. It's not really on weight the right way. No, it's a game. Yeah. And it's still hard to say you can't feed nutrition. Nutrition is cruel. And the other reason for doing it now is, yeah, it keeps going where the, the human they form is involved. They want to be pushed by run around. It's always captured my imagination. It should be in a few years. I want to be physically well enough to, so, to do that with them. As I'm getting older, also and looking also, at how these people are training, I think there's, um, there's a common theme. Them seeing me and, and parasitic individuals are always based on strength, nutrition, should serve the inspiration more than 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and still good habits in them from a very young age and that is really sort of inspiring yeah well I, I can relate to that because my dad was in the military and to impart that he's 63 he still works out six yeah. times a week my now. wife and I often yeah. have this and debate that's and why at seven years old he threw me into the boxing gym because that's what I grew up seeing dad do go to the boxing gym go to the gym it was just normal for me it's just a shame keep making excuses not to go to the gym now it's now but need to sort that out. Over the years, in regards to me, <laughs> right. and just yeah, work, full-time job and, and all the rest of it. My working hours are flexible. My my plan working hours for us to yeah, it does change 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 time for it. And I've known it older recently. Post lockdown, it's been hard to get a good routine because lockdown was so influenced as much. But whilst we can, we should do what we can. I myself twice, pushing myself too hard last year. No, I think it's a massive part of don't push it too hard too early. It should be taught in schools. Nutrition should be taught properly. It is going off topic, but it is so important. It's not good at all. I'm not. Gonna yeah, name any brands, um, but bolognese sauces. Yeah, um, yeah. I've been, had this conversation with my wife for years. Um, I will not buy them or any sauce. I will not buy it if something can live on a shelf for five, yeah. six, seven years without going out of date. Why are you putting that in your body? Yeah. yeah, it's it's so normal for people to go to the shop and they'll buy a glass jar of bolognese sauce, yeah. which is full of garbage. Yeah. It, you, know, you buy some prostata, some garlic, some onions, salt, pepper, and you can make a much better sauce for half yeah. the price. And it's yeah, we eat pretty simple food, but bless my wife's a very good cook. Whereas I burn toast, I haven't got the patience to cook. But we both have our roles, and um, she makes a great turkey mince bolognese and slow cooker, and makes enough for, for you know two or three meals, and the, and the kids love it, and it's full of vegetables hidden in there. And so they've got used to that. So if they had a jar sauce now, they would actually complain. You know, yeah, uh, we we cook most of our meals at home. I mean, my discomfort with eating is so bad that it's very rare for us to go to a restaurant because my wife knows I will feel various discomfort, and the time I take to finish a meal might be twice as long as everyone else. So going out to eat is a very rare occurrence for us, and we have most of our meals at home, and they, and they cook at home. Yeah, we indulge occasionally, a bit of fast food, um, but. What's what's sad in terms of going back to the point about training and sports and all the rest of it is the amount of sporting endeavours and everything else sponsored by fast food companies, which completely goes against the grain and the ethic and also the training regimes of, of most of these athletes anyway. I think it was at Euro 2020 last year where Cristiano Ronaldo made a point of recommending people to drink water rather than the carbonated soft drink that was there as an advertising prop in front of him at the press conference. 
Yeah, well, I, I don't know um, if you saw what happened to Coca-Cola stock price after that interview. It dropped massively yeah. for the first time in years. Yeah. And you know, it's unheard of for Coca-Cola stock price to drop down because of what it is. Yeah, listen, I mean, you know, all these companies are a part of modern life, right? So we can't really do anything about it, but as long as we educate the kids and um, then let them make their decisions. Mm. Yeah, I, I've I've switched my diet in the last few months to less carbs in the morning and more protein and leafy green veg. Uh, and the kids are like, um, and that's based on you know, advice from Matt and the guys in the gym about digestible proteins and what works for my body. Um, I found I'm digesting it much better and not feeling as sluggish as opposed to having porridge on them. But the, the, the comments from the kids are priceless. You know, they'll, they'll they turn around with dad. Especially Niall, Dad, why are you having dinner for breakfast? You seem a bit confused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kale, leaf, another leafy greens with some chicken breast for breakfast probably throw a child off. Yeah, it was a chicken leg and some and some spinach first thing in the morning. He literally just gave me that look that he has, which is quite amusing. <laughs> I can I can picture what he'd say. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be hilarious to see, but with obviously the the calorie consumption is something that you, you struggle with, yeah. and you know, go going to the gym is something you do. It could be very easy for someone else in your situation to give up, yet you haven't. You've strived to learn more and become better. Which is there any advice you could give to someone who? might have a similar issue or going through something very similar where the yeah, them because that is that is like an unbreakable kind of mindset to me. Yeah, and believe me now, I have my weak moments, my wife knows them. I've, I've sought help in the past. Um the problem is most professional help always winds up in the eventual um points where they try to prescribe you tablets and I've always been clear I'm not taking any medication. I'm going to find other ways to fix it. I'm on enough medication as it is just to cope with day-to-day life. Um, so you have your, your ups and downs. And, and you know, I, I had a down period earlier this year where it was just getting too much and, and too difficult physically and mentally. But um, you have to pull yourself out of those and look around you. But the first thing I'd say is if you take it all the way back, and this is a mistake we made, um, when you get told you have the big C, mm. it's a very scary word but you've got to look beyond it. Now, I remember my mindset when I got told was after I'd recovered from the initial shock was, well, it's grown from within me, therefore I must be able to beat it. Right? Yeah. Very, very, probably a very medically naive view or whatever, but that was my mindset. And ironically, it wasn't the disease once I was on treatment that made me feel rubbish. It was the chemotherapy. And I would not wish chemotherapy my worst enemy. It's horrible. Um, I remember being hallucinogenic, um, even more bad tempered than I am in regular life. You know, unable to sleep. I still have flashback of the beeping sound of all the machines in the hospital and the inpatient. Mm-hmm. That's what made me feel rubbish. Um, but the one thing I would advise is always question the doctors. If something doesn't sound right, no matter how. Um, 
medically untrained you are, if it doesn't sound right or it doesn't feel right, question them and their motivation be within your rights to. And you, know, you and I have been talking about certain things in your life recently, and I've been trying to help you and advise you based on my experiences. But doctors are just people. They're not gods. Yes. And they need to be questioned. Um, and that's one of the reasons we're quite open in talking about this. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to sit there and coach everyone's mindset to think like me or to get through it. But over the years, I've had countless numbers of people come to me saying, who do I speak to? My mum's got this. My dad's got this. Can you put me in touch with someone? And I just referred them or got a referral or a point of contact for them. If that helps them to a smaller or greater extent, that's a good thing. But the thing I would say is always, always, always question the doctors. Yeah, you see, you might might think you're not able to uh, give some advice on their mindset, but I reckon you can because stories connect people and obviously everyone's life is their personal story. Mm. And some people find it hard to, to talk about it and relate it to other people, but obviously with my job as a barber, you see so many different people, yeah. so many different walks of life. And I will take little gems of knowledge from somebody else. And if someone comes to me and they've got a problem, I know that gem of knowledge can help them with, I'll pass it on. And it's not my knowledge, it's someone else's. And I think some people even like listening to it, they'll probably hear what you're saying and think, well, actually, uh, I I can get back there and I can do that. And I think sometimes people just need to hear somebody else's yeah. story to go, well, actually, I need to stop feeling sorry for myself and I can do it. Or, well, yeah, I will question the doctor and I will ask for a second opinion, which is what you've told me to do and I have done and they're still ignoring me, the bastards. <laughs> Yeah, you're you really going to have to push that. Um, but we can talk about it offline because that wasn't the subject of this. But yeah, um, I'm happy to help anyone or give my thoughts to anyone who wants advice in that situation and obviously keep it confidential. But the biggest problem is people don't talk about it enough. No, they, they don't, which is, you know, it, it's it's not a, a plug for the hair products in the podcast. So if people listen to the podcast, I might even know about the product range. But, you know, part of what I want to do with it through obviously what I do in my work, which yes, it is cut hair, but 99% of it is talking and listening to people is use profits to to train other barbers up to help talk to people. Because when we look at things, it's a UFC on the weekend, uh, Paddy the Baddy talking about how, his friend had killed himself a couple of days before the, um, his fight. It was the day before the weigh-in. And yet, I know Tyson Fury's openly talks about it, but you know, for Paddy the Baddy to be fighting at UFC London, which I know is from Liverpool, but it's like his hometown because they don't do UFC Liverpool, to use that stage to talk about men should be talking to other people, it shows you how massive of an issue it is as well. Yeah, and people don't talk about disease and illness. No. And they should, because technology now, I mean, don't forget, I was treated 2010, so it was 12 years ago. 
So the, the, the revolutionary gains in, in cancer treatment now are, are way beyond what was available then. The irony is, if you talk to my oncologist, who, who's still my primary carer, is that for various reasons, even privately, the sort of surgery I had then would not even be contemplated now. No, frightening to hear. Yeah, it is, and which is, I I did want to touch on that. So I'm, I'm glad you've you know, found a way to bring it back up. So the mindset of them doctors and all them surgeons is what saved your life then. Yeah. And you think, well, if it wasn't for them going, okay, we'll do it, that is crazy, isn't it? Well, the surgeon who, who uh, Mr. Madan, who was the lead surgeon, came up to see me for the week after my operation. And... Um, He'd obviously done his DD on me because I was working in finance and investment management at the time. And there are a few Google articles about me rejoining my previous firm and all the rest of it. And he said to me, you know, in your, in your arena, you probably have guys who take extreme risk and guys who take calculated risk and guys who just plotters. And he drew a box on a piece of paper, a rectangle, and he goes, medicine's the same. Most people are in the middle of this rectangle, doing what they're told, following the processes. Um, collecting their check and going home. He goes, I'm I'm the one testing the edge of this box and seeing what is possible. And he said, that's why I pushed the envelope with you and, and, and yes, took on some real heavy weights to um, between me and Andy Gaia to um, see whether this was possible. And he said, don't ever underestimate the amount of flack Andy's taken for, for doing this politically. And I had no idea that the medical scene was so political. But yeah, it was their mindset of, we're not going to give up on this 34-year-old. Let's find a way to get his cancer out. Mm. Um, it's been written up for the for the journals, obviously anonymized. They got written up as a, as a paper of showing what was possible. Um, and I shared it with a few medical professionals and interested friends over the years. So I got a copy of it. So yeah, it was a bit of a journey, but I, I'd, I'd always say to anyone in this position, just ask questions and communicate. Just don't accept what you're told. Each individual knows their body better than anyone. Yeah. So <clears throat> with, obviously we, we've touched on, you know, the mindset of you coming back from having cancer, getting fit and healthy again and staying fit and healthy. <clears throat> and I know you are a big boxing fan because it's all we talk about when you're in the shop. Well, that and your Boris Johnson impressions and a few other things. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the haircuts are absolutely terrible, but the banter's great. <laughs> yeah, that's why we keep coming back. But, so, it's a, something that we have talked about previously, me and Rob, is mindsets of boxers going into the ring. And I think it'd be very interesting to get your opinion on the Usyk AJ rematch, like we talked about before we started recording. It's interesting. One's leaving his very own traumatic experience, like you said, and well, it's still like I said, one's coming back yeah. for glory, redemption. Um, I don't either. know. I've, I don't know. Being totally neutral, what Usyk and that country have gone through is on a different scale to any, anything anyone can imagine in the last 70 years. There's no one around really who remembers the war in detail, or the most 90% of the population don't. Yeah, and this is comparable to that. Um, 
and to leave that to go and train for a sporting encounter, it, it just must seem so irrelevant to him at one level, given what his countrymen are going through and, and wives and children and everything else. And to be able to perform at his best, if he managed to perform anywhere near his best, is testament to his mental strength and ability to focus. And boxing is one of these sports that's always fascinating, not just because of the physicality involved, but the sheer bloody-mindedness of the training journey, which must be so solitary and isolating. Despite having coaches and trainers around you, it's essentially the boxer pounding the pavement and, and doing the reps and putting in the hard yards under instruction. It's not a team event. Um, it's not even tennis where you're warming up with someone, you're playing against someone. Um, it's a very, very solitary training regime, it feels like. When you're in the ring, you're completely on your own. Yeah, it's not the coach taking the punches. No. But that's what I find really, really intriguing about this fight. Because obviously, if if Usyk is taking it as this is just a sporting event, I need to get it over and done with to fulfil contract obligations, it, it that could be a massive downfall for him or yeah. if it's I need to go in there and I to win to give my country people a massive morale boost that yeah listen I don't know the guy at all and I haven't read no fight was just lack of bandwidth and time but my guess would be having seen his character and demeanor pre and post the first fight he'll go in with the latter attitude that's what I think as well um equally I think um and I've, I've been an AJ fan for years. I think he gets a bad rap because he's too manicured or whatever his you know, image is. But there's nothing wrong with his image. It's good, clean, hard work, made some mistakes and came back from them. Yeah, I, I do feel sorry for AJ on that um, part. And yeah, he got in trouble with the law. Yeah. But he also turned his life around, won a gold medal, represented yeah. his country, and he is become a role model most parents yeah. would be happy for their children to watch. Yeah. It may be a manicured public image, but you know what? It is what it is, and he's still working extremely hard for his craft. He doesn't have to. He could probably retire from boxing right now. Yeah. You know, but that mental fortitude that he's displaying and to come back from an unexpected loss against uh, Andy Ruiz and then, you know, be, be outboxed so comprehensively by Usyk, but still demand the rematch, I, I think shows a, a level of bravery. And these guys are putting their lives on the line, right? It's very easy for pundits and so-called experts who are sitting on the sidelines, casting aspersions and opinions. And it's one of the frustrating things about sports generally, that the punditry industry has grown to the extent it has um, with so-called experts and opinions with no informed insight or, or prior experience of their own. Of what these people go through, you know. No, I, I've said for years, um, got nothing to do with boxing, but it's like when journalists body shame, or they don't do it so much yeah. anymore, but they'll body shame a, a celebrity in the newspaper. I've always said they should have a photo of themselves in a bikini next to the celebrity's photo. It's the same in boxing. The best commentators are always ex-boxers. Yeah. And a lot of journalists from the old school, like Steve Bunce, who's an ex-boxer, um, Gareth A. Davis has never been an amateur boxer, but it's, if Steve Bunce slags someone off, at least he can say, well, I, actually, I had 57 amateur fights. 
um, still we did have a better insight, and I think the sport, sport generally, and boxing especially, has evolved so much. But you know, it's um, it's hard to be too critical of these guys when you're going in there twelve rounds, literally thumping the life out of the other person. And I've tried boxing training before. I've never been. I think I've been in one fight my whole life, and it was a two punch fight in the playground. He threw one and missed. I threw one and hit, and I got a detention for it. Um, and that was the end of my you know amateur boxing career. Um, but sorry, I'm, I'm, I've lost my train of thought. Um, yeah, to, to go in there and, and and basically be paid to to beat someone up and put your life on the line is, is a pretty bold call. So don't knock them for it, you know, appreciate the level of work they're going to and training and mental fortitude to keep going, keep going, keep going, putting their lives on the line. Yeah, because that's why I said, well, as we were talking about it, like, what is AJ coming back for? Redemption, ego, contract obligations, what is it? Because he is he's got to be worth more money than he can spend in three lifetimes. It's worth speculation on our part. We don't know his lifestyle, but that's the other thing. I, I follow a lot of sports. I'm a big golf fan. I'm a big football fan. The problem with society and media generally is they hold these guys up to be role models. They don't want to be role models, but they're built up to be role models, and then we love to take them down. Oh, of course. The whole Tiger Woods thing. Yeah. He's a golfer. I don't care who he's sleeping with. I admire him for his physical capability, his mental strength to come back from so many injuries and what he did for the game. Like, same with AJ. We, we don't know. Even if it is for money, fair play to Who him. cares? <laughs> he's still putting his body and his, and his life on the line and going through some very, very extreme training conditions. And, and part of it could be, does he know anything else? If he stops training or working towards that goal, what would his life become? Yeah, well, look what happened to Tyson Fury. Mm. You know, it, it led to him nearly committing suicide mm. and from not training. Yeah. And I, f- I think it sounds awful saying this. I love Ricky Hatton, and you know, he was my AJ, so to speak. I grew up watching him. Look what's happened to Ricky Hatton. You know, yes, he ballooned in between fights, but no, he retired from boxing and he openly talks about it now. He stopped uh-huh. training, he put on loads of weight, tried killing himself. And uh-huh. you know, that that was a man who was loved by the people on a level we've never seen before yeah. or since, really. Yeah, look at Mike Tyson. I, I remember growing up watching Mike Tyson, and obviously, he was badly advised, made a load of bad life choices, but. As soon as Customer said, I read Tyson's book twice, and it's a harrowing read. His mind basically started unraveling because Customer had given him that focus as a young boy and treated him like a son when no one else had treated him like a, a human being to that point. Um, and so, yeah, even if AJ is doing it for money, whatever he's doing it for, whatever their motivation, the fact they're doing it, I think, gives them a focus and a purpose, and we should applaud them. Right? They haven't set themselves up to be real models. They're just boxers. You know, you're a barber. You could be a celebrity barber one day. That's not doesn't mean you're out there to project yourself as a role model, tell people how to live their lives. You're just no. really being an exceptional barber one day. <clears throat> yeah, if I keep practicing, I might get there. Yeah. 
No, I, I, I fully agree with that because they're, they're sportsmen first, celebrities second. And, you know, I think, you know, David Beckham, for me, was the first major celebrity sportsman growing up. Yeah, maybe maybe in the US it would be Michael Jordan. But he was, you know, iconic for, for the different reasons. But, yeah, David Beckham in this country was probably the first crossover from celeb world to a sport world to celeb world. And, it, and it's followed since, but I, I don't do much social media. I haven't got Instagram or whatever the other ones are, but I don't think AJ's out there flaunting pictures of him on private jets and beaches and, and all the rest of it, is he? No, it's, it's all training footage. Yeah, he's not He's not leading a Floyd Mayweather life on social media. I don't think Usyk does either. These guys are, are normal professionals. I think you have to respect that. And massively you do, because you know at the end of the day, people want to sit down and be entertained for an evening yeah. watching boxing yeah. they're, they're doing the entertainment I'll never forget I watched the Michael Watson fight live and I saw it happening and I remember as a kid watching Gerald McLevin live as well on TV I think it was an ITV in those days and they were they were real tough watches I was a teenager at the time and you know my father was pretty concerned about you know the fact that I was watching his stuff but he was a big boxing he is a big boxing man as well yeah Not I think it You'll come over and watch the fight on my Sky Bill whenever it's on. Well, it's always better when someone else is paying for it, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> so um, before we wrap this up, obviously we've we've touched on a lot of mindset stuff and the mindset of AJ and Usyk going into this. And another thing I want to touch on before we leave is Tyson Fury. Is... Is he waiting for the winner of AJ Usyk? Do you think, as as a fan looking in, I think he is. Yeah. Um, you know, he hasn't relinquished his belt yet. He's retired. Yeah. Um, yes. You think he's waiting for AJ to win as well? One thing of predicting this from a from a completely outsider's no informed opinion um, position. It's the fight everyone wants, and it's the fight that will generate a shit ton of money for both fighters. Um, my fear is if Usyk wins, he does retire because I think Usyk has given some real problems on the inside. Yeah, well, Usyk's already said he's taken a week off after the fight and he's going back to the front line. Right, and that's not a man who wants to stay in boxing and changing the mindset of the person as well. And if there's a resolution to that issue, which you know. We all hope there is and a peaceful one very soon. You could see him back in boxing pretty soon. And and then I don't know. I, Tyson's got this really weird style. <laughs> and you just don't know where, how he's going to work against someone like Usyk. He's never fought a really small guy, has he? No, he hasn't. And people say, you know, a good big guy always beats a good little guy. But Usyk's a great little guy. Yeah, and he's fast and he's powerful. And he was actually hurting AJ with some of his shots late in the game, and he's got the stamina for 12 rounds, and on the inside, what he could do to Tyson would be interesting to see. I, I would love to see it, just to see you know, how does Fury deal with such a slick southpaw who's 6'2". Yeah. Um, in terms of what I'd like to see, I'd like to see Tyson versus AJ. I think it's the fight everyone's been wanting to see for years. Um, and I think it would be an absolute dust-up. Oh, I think it'd be it'd be amazing for however long it lasts. But 
it would also be a history-defining fight for British boxing because it would be the first time ever in British history that two heavyweight world champions have fought for all four belts. And that would be a first time ever in heavyweight boxing. All four belts have never been fought for. The last undisputed champion was Lennox Lewis, and that was a three-belt era. And he was Canadian. Yeah, well, we can pretend he was British. (laughs) I I think me, like every other fan, loves the app. My only concern is also... Is there a clause in the contract for a decider if it goes to 1 1 Usyk Joshua? I hope not. I hope not. How do you see the fight panning out? So I I see AJ getting stopped. Um, If Usyk goes in there with the attitude of, I have to win for the sake of the morale of my country folk. Will his but, training and conditioning be at tip-top level? Given I, do, I don't think it will be. Mm. I, I, I don't think it can't be. Because he hasn't had the you know perfect preparation for the fight. So there's there's no way it can be. And if he does go in there with that, I need to win attitude at all costs, which then means he could throw caution to the wind and get clipped on the way in as well. Yeah. That's why I think this fight is more interesting than the first one. And um, what do you think the AJ strategy will be? Seek and destroy. I don't think there'll be any any fancy footwork attempts, any fancy jabs. It will be AJ Dylan White, AJ. Yeah. The AJ that went to back to that, he? Yeah, he's got to. And you know, the, the team he's got around him now, you know, he's got Mikey Garcia's brother yeah. and Angel Fernandez. They are aggressive style boxing coaches. Is his um, previous coach not involved in the, in the training for this one at all? Not not at all, no. Wow. That's a big split. He's, he's it is a big split. Class. He's been with Rob McCracken since, what, yeah. 2008? Yeah. And stuck by him very loyally as well. Yeah, maybe... Maybe it's what he needed. Yeah, fresh perspective. And and get back to a bit of spit and sawdust because it's it's easy to be comfortable at Team GB, you know, world renowned training centre. Yeah. Let's see, hopefully we get a good fight on at the end of it. Hopefully, and it'll be a interesting talk in the barbershop for the next month and no lead up to it. Yeah. Right. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. Thank you for coming on, and uh, I hope a lot of people have taken stuff away from that can inspire them and help them. Yeah, if if any of your listeners or or customers listen to this and want to chat, um, you probably know how to put them in touch with me best, so happy to do that. I'll be your PA. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Luke. You're welcome.